So I am from here, from Texas, uh, which means if you're new uh, to Texas, that means a couple things. You are, you are indoctrinated uh, as you grow up uh, as a Texan with a few uh, eternal truths, at least that's what are, are presented. Number one, uh, you have been born in the greatest place in the world, right? Texas is God's country. You're either born here or you get here as fast as you can, right, as the saying goes, which we chuckle at. But, you know, 90% of this room got here as fast as you can, okay? So might be something to that, right? You're told that. We're the best state. We're the biggest state. Nobody really cares about Alaska, right? Right? Texas, it's awesome. And with, uh, you know, your own awesomeness comes, you know, other people aren't that great. There's some people that, you know, uh, people that we need to watch out for that are kind of our eternal enemies, Russians, Californians, you know, uh, there's, there's a group, but there's one place and one people that are worse than all the others combined, and that is the French, right? There's one place that we will be locked into enemies with forever, and that is the people of France. They don't like us for some reason, right? They'd be speaking German if it wasn't for us, right? All right, these are all the lessons my, my grandfathers taught me, right, growing up. Uh, they don't like us. They think they're better than us. My father traveled abroad when he was in college and made the mistake of stopping through Paris. It was a horrible experience, and so I grew up hearing, they hate you, and we hate them, and that's how it goes, and that's how God wants it. Not really uh, that last part, but, you know, I had this sort of mindset, right, going into life, and then I married someone who was half French, and all of a sudden, what do I do? She's got tons of family all over France that we were going to go to visit while we were engaged, right? The deal wasn't sealed yet. And so on a plane ride over to meet her family, her grandfather lives right outside of Paris. I was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? What am I going to do? do I, is there a way I can just be silent and hide the fact that I'm American? I mean, I look pretty American. Don't have much style, things like that. I don't look very European. So I was very nervous, right, going over to meet my wife's family. And so I get over there. And start to notice some things. It's not as bad. I'm, I'm, I'm quiet. I'm letting my wife speak French for me. So I'm not, you know, assuming that they speak English, all these different things. But then there was an event that happened that just shattered my entire worldview. My wife and I were sitting at a restaurant. It was lunchtime. And we were eating together. And, you know, you're in, it's France, so there's tons of tourists. And so we're eating, gazing into each other's eyes, as you do when you're engaged. Um, and uh, uh, some Americans walked by, and I knew they were Americans because they had uh, a shirt on that was maroon. So I didn't know they or did not, didn't only know they're Americans. I knew they were Texan. I won't say the college, but they just lost to Alabama last night, right? So they walk past us. We're sitting outside, and they go to the hostess of the restaurant that we're in. And I hear behind me, we're in France, hola, dos, people. And the hostess uh, very graciously said, yes, A, I speak English, B, I'll show you to your table, right? So apparently these Texans thought, I'm in not America. What's a not America language? Spanish, right? And the rest of the world will just, you know, catch up. And all of a sudden I thought, I get it. I understand. If the French don't like us, those, that couple is why, right? And then I started to evaluate, you know, a couple things. Maybe... I was taught things that were incorrect growing up. You know, maybe I had a misjudgment about myself, and maybe even I've misjudged the French. And then as I traveled around, uh, you know, the rest of France, I noticed these people are real sweet. It's the Parisians, it's Paris that are kind of a little snooty. How would I feel if people visited New York and said, all Americans are mean and cold? Be like, no, it's just those Yankees, right? So I realized 
I had made a misjudgment. I had misjudged myself and therefore misjudged others, and I'd been carrying this false worldview the whole time. I love the French. I'm not afraid to say it, except for most of you who are armed, right? Uh, I kind of like them, so be careful. Uh, you know. Uh, so uh, we all carry judgments, and that's how Texans are taught growing up to judge, and that's how you Californians will be taught to judge others as you, you know, soak into our culture. How are Christians meant to judge? How are we meant to view others? How are we meant to view ourselves and view the world? That is exactly what Jesus is going to talk to us about today. As he continues, as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus continues to show us, people of the kingdom, how are you meant to view the world? What are the traits of your life? We saw that in the Beatitudes last week. Lee showed, how are you meant to view yourself, right? When you, when you see, think of your own provision, God feeding you and clothing you, don't be anxious like the rest of the world. Trust in your Father who feeds the birds and clothes the flowers. And today it's going to be, how do you view others? When you look out into the world, how are Christians meant to view? How are Christians meant to judge others? And we're going to see three things. We're meant to judge humbly. We're meant to judge wisely. And we're meant to judge joyfully. We're meant to judge others humbly, judge wisely, and judge joyfully. Look at verse 1. We'll dive in. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, uh, this is a very, very, very famous passage, not because of its, you know, awesomeness, not because of its Philippians 4.13-ness, right, or God's love. It's very famous primarily because it's a nice one we like to misuse with others. It's arguably the most misused verse in all the Bible. Judge not. Right? Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? It's misused along with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You'll notice athletes will have that tattooed on them. I can score as many touchdowns, right, because Jesus gives me strength. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We're all going to get promotions at work, right? That's how that's often misused. God is love. You'll see on banners with a rainbow behind it, typically today as a way of saying, you know, God would never tell me I have to live a certain way or I can't be free to be me, right? God is a God of love, which means I can express myself in any way that I can. There's all sorts of misused scriptures, and here we have judge not, which is typically a way of saying, who are you to tell me how I am to live my life? Who are you to tell me I can do something or can't do one thing and should do something else? Don't judge me or else you're going to be judged, right? That's how it's typically used. And so even though it's one of the most misused verses in arguably all of the scriptures, I would say today it's one of the most needed verses in all of the scriptures. One of the most needed for us, one of the most needed for our society. So maybe, maybe since it is so misused, it's best to start off saying what it doesn't mean. So what does this verse not mean? What does Jesus not mean by telling us, don't judge? He doesn't mean, first of all, what we typically use it as. 
he doesn't mean you are not allowed to make judgments about other people. You are not allowed to have an opinion on someone's actions. You have no right to you know, tell someone else how they ought to live their life. That's not what he means. In fact, all over the scriptures, he's going to command us, the scriptures are going to command us to judge, to judge others. John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus and John saying, no, judge. Judge others, just judge with right judgment. 1 John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test, judge the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Right? Don't just accept anything that comes your way. Judge, test to see if something in this context, a teacher is from God. In the Sermon on the Mount, and in, in, later in this passage today, we'll see we're meant to judge if people are dogs or pigs, which sounds a little harsh. We'll talk about that. Uh, later in the sermon. Later, Jesus is going to tell us in a couple weeks to judge uh, false prophets by their fruit, right? So all over the place, we are commanded to judge. So Jesus can't mean here, you're not allowed to judge at all. You're not allowed to make any judgments about anyone or speak into other people's lives. So that's what he doesn't mean. What does Jesus mean? He doesn't mean don't judge. What he means is don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge hypocritically. Don't use a measure for others that you yourself don't follow. Right? Don't tell someone to take the speck out of their eye, this tiny speck when you have a giant log in your eye. And specifically, he's going to break down. There's two ways. There's two ways that we are tempted typically to judge hypocritically. The first way that we typically judge hypocritically is by stepping in God's place. Stepping in God's place. Look at verse 1 again. Judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you pronounce, uh, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The reality is there is one judge of the universe. There's one judge with a capital J, if you will, the judge of judges. He's also the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he's the judge of judges. And he's the only one, the only judge who sees perfectly who has no question marks at the end of his judgment. He's the only one that judges perfectly. We judge imperfectly. We judge by outward appearance, right? We don't know heart motivations often. We're the ones that pick King Saul. He's tall. He's handsome. He's a little ripped, I guess, and that's good for war. He's the king, right, that we should want. We see imperfectly. We look at outward appearances, but God sees perfectly. He's the only one who can see heart motivation, He's the only one who can perfectly see inward. He's the one that picks David, the scrawny little shepherd who doesn't even get to show up to the lineup, right, to be picked for the next king. He sees perfectly. He's the only perfect judge. And what sin naturally tempts us to do as we make judgments is to step in his place. We want to take the gavel out of his hand and hit it ourselves. We want to take the robes off of him and place it on ourselves. We want to sit in his place judgment seat. Adam and Eve, they're commanded, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they say? You know what? I think I want to be the one to determine what is good and what is evil. I know you say this, but I think I know better. I think I'm a better judge of what I should and shouldn't eat and what I can and cannot do and what is good is what it, and what is evil than you. They've stepped in his place. It's the core of sin, stepping in God's place. And Jesus here is saying, your sinful hearts are going to constantly entice you to do that as you are judging 
others, where now you are the one that is the standard that others must measure up to. You're the one who gets to set the way people are supposed to live. You're the one who holds out the measuring stick and gets to pronounce judgment. Uh, some time ago, I asked a friend how I can be praying for him. You know, it's what I do for a living. Uh, I'm a professional prayer. So I asked uh, a buddy uh, how I could be praying for him. And uh, he said, you know, I, I gave me some things. And he said, I, I just give me pay, pray that I would have patience with people who just don't get it. Right? There's just people who don't get it, and they frustrate me because they don't get it. So pray for patience. And I kind of lovingly just said, I will pray for patience. I will also pray for a little bit of humility. Right? As you encounter others who don't get it, I'm assuming you mean like you do. Right? What's happening? None of you are ever going to respond to my text messages of how to pray for you now. I won't do that with you. You'll show up in a sermon, but it'll be years later and people will have forgotten. Right? Uh, so what's, what's, what's that uh, heart revealing there? I'm frustrated because people don't get it like me. What is he stepped in? He had become the standard in his mind. Others weren't measuring up, not to God's standard, but to his. Right? Our hearts are always drawn in to do that, always tempted to make ourselves the standard rather than God. And the best biblical example of this is the Pharisees. Their self-righteousness, the, right, the standard of righteousness that they have set is, become, is the standard that they judge everyone by. Why are they disgusted as they see Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? They would never do that. They would never stoop so low as to eat with the lowly, sinful people, right? That didn't meet their standard. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, right? The religious leaders, those who should be pointing the people to God. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector, a traitor that would have been hated by everybody, that was scamming his own people out of money. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe on all that I get. What's he doing there? God, I thank you that uh, I'm awesome, so I guess thank you and you're welcome at the same time, right? I do these things, and I don't do what these other lowly people are going to do. He's become the standard of righteousness in his own mind. That's why it's called self-righteousness, right? He is the measuring stick in his mind. But verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector uh, has sat on God's seat, and now he is the judge in his own mind. Or sorry, the tax collector, uh, the Pharisee has sat on God's seat. He's the judge in his own mind. The tax collector, rather, has God on the throne, and he knows that God is merciful. And so he cries out to the judge for mercy, and he goes home justified. The Pharisee, who sits on the seat himself, goes home condemned. Goes home condemned. There you see the example, right? The Pharisee, I'm doing great. You're welcome, God. And he goes home condemned. He is the standard. He's the measuring point. And that's what sin is always going to entice us to do as we judge others. So who are we more like? 
Are we like the tax collector who's very well aware of our lowness and just cries out for mercy? Or are we like the Pharisee who's very aware of our awesomeness and scans the room and says, I am better than them, right? When you see other people's children misbehaving, you have a subtle voice in your head that says, my kids don't act that way. Something must be going on at home, right? I would never send my kids to that school. Guess they don't love their kids, right? You have those subtle voices saying, you're better than them. If they were just a little bit more like you, right? Socially, when you, encounter, when you, when you just hang out with people, if you don't click, do you have the like, yeah, they're just a little weird, right? They're awkward. It's never you. You're never the awkward one, right? You're normal, and if you don't click, it's them. They're just a little awkward, right? You are the standard, and all of a sudden, you know, people haven't meshed because they, they can't, you know, they don't know how high the bar is, right, hanging out with you. There's a certain amount of social savviness required to join my, you know, living room hangouts, right? Uh, are we constantly thinking, I would never, right? I would never do that. Is that a constant refrain in our mind, whether we actually consciously think it or not, right? Are we constantly thinking, if they were only just a little bit more like me? Have we become the standard of our judgments? Have we stepped in God's place in our judgments? Jesus is warning you that's exactly what sin is going to entice you to do, to take the gavel out of God's hand. And Jesus says, when you do that, sin's going to entice you to do that. And when you do that, you need to realize that that measuring stick is going to be applied to you. As you point the finger at others, you're pointing into a mirror that's pointing right back at you when you do that with others. Again, maybe the best uh, biblical example would be King David, this man after God's own heart and the prophet Nathan. David uh, should be at war, and he's not. He's at the palace, and he goes out onto his balcony. He sees uh, Bathsheba, a woman who is not his wife. In fact, it's uh, one of his friend's wives, taking a bath sleeps with her, calls her to himself, sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant to cover up his sin. He kills uh, Uriah, her husband, or has him killed, and then he hides it. And the prophet Nathan uh, comes to him sometime later, and Nathan tells him a story, as prophets often do, and said, there's two men. There's a rich man who had uh, tons of sheep, had, had big flocks, Uh, more than he needed. And then there was a poor man who had one little lamb, and he loved this lamb. It ate out of his hand. It slept in the bed with him, right? He loved this lamb. And then the rich man was entertaining some friends that were traveling through, and instead of taking one of his many sheep, he took the, the poor man's little lamb, and he killed it and prepared that for his guests. And David doesn't even let him finish the story before his blood is boiling. And he said, where is this man? Bring him here. We're going to put him to death, and the greatest sermon application of all time, Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. That measuring stick that you would apply to him is being applied to you. You're the one who has done that. And Jesus says that is true of all of us when we would call people to our standard. We point at them, and there's a finger pointing right back at us. The reality is none of us are God None of us see perfectly like the perfect judge. And so the second we use ourselves as the standard, we condemn ourselves. We want to pretend to sit in his seat and pretend to be God and demand perfection of everybody else. Well, perfection will be demanded of you, right? It's the height of hypocrisy. 
I would imagine no one in this room wants uh, the standard applied to them that we so often and so readily uh, typically apply to others. No one in this room would want their whole life judged by a soundbite. Yet how many clips are texted to you of, you know, someone saying one sentence and you have all of a sudden got a great read of that entire person's life, right? I get that all the time, you know, woke preacher clips, you know, a sentence that somebody said and all of a sudden, boom, that guy's gone crazy, right? His whole life is judged by this one sentence. Uh, No one here wants that standard applied to them. Uh, In fact, Tim, (laughs) Tim used to pull out of context like audio from our sermons uh, and he used to have a file. I think it got providentially like wiped from his computer because I don't think he has it anymore. But you would click on like Jared and you'd press it, it'd be this three second, you know, audio clip from one of my sermons and it'd be like, you know what? I don't think Hitler's that bad. And you're like, what? When did I say that? But then like the whole sermon is Germans in the 30s were saying, you know what? I don't think Hitler was that bad, but Tim just trimmed it perfectly, right? I wouldn't want everyone thinking I was a Nazi sympathizer because of that one little clip. Yeah, we do that, right, all the time. It's a silly example, but you, you get what I mean. We, we, we constantly are taking this tiny little thing, and all of a sudden we've got a perfect read on this person's character, on this person's entire life, their motivations, what they're about, what they're trying to destroy, right? All these different things. Nobody in this room would want their words twisted to yield the worst possible interpretation, yet we do that to others all the time, right? Oh, okay, you said this. I think you meant this. And before I ask you, I'm going to go tell a whole bunch of other people that you did mean this, right? Nobody wants that standard applied to them, yet we do it all the time. Next week, uh, Tim will preach. We're we're meant to treat others the way uh, we wish to be treated. And Jesus here is quite simply just saying, judge others the way you would want to be judged. Use the same measuring stick that you would want applied to to you. Talk to others the way you would want them to talk about you. Extend the same grace and the same mercy and the same patience you would want others to apply to you. Again, none of this means you don't judge. Jesus is not saying, therefore, don't judge because you're a sinner too. Rather, he's just saying, your judgments are meant to reflect his judgments. Keep God in the judgment seat in your judgments. Your judgments are meant to reflect his judgments, God's judgments. And how does Jesus judge? He's merciful. He is patient. He is gracious. He eats with the tax collectors and sinners who do not have cleaned up lives by any means. He usually catches them in their sin. He's incredibly patient with them and incredibly merciful with them. But he doesn't leave them there. He calls them out of their sin. To himself, right? You see the, the beautiful mercy and truth tied together in how Jesus judges. We don't ignore sin. We call people out of it, but we meet others in our judgments with the same mercy and gentleness and kindness and love that Jesus had for Zacchaeus, right? the tax collector who had cheated so many. He calls him out of the tree and has dinner with him, and his life has changed as he calls him away from his corrupt practices, the same mercy and patience that Jesus has for Mary, the demon-possessed woman. He calls to himself and is one of his most loyal followers, the same mercy and patience he had for Peter, constantly putting his foot in his mouth, denying him over and over again, the same mercy and patience he had for you when you wanted nothing to do with him, when you very much loved your sin 
and hated the name of God, whether you would say it or not. Judge with the same mercy and gentleness as your Savior as you call people away from the sin that they are living in to a glorious, glorious Savior. So the first way we judge hypocritically is stepping in God's place. Second way we judge hypocritically is we forget who we are. We forget who we are. We lose sight of ourselves in our judgments. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrites? First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Sin makes you want to step in God's place. Another thing that it does is sin will minimize your sin. Sin will blind you to your own sin, very much minimize your sin and maximize the sins of everybody else. Will minimize yours, that plank that you should see, you can't even see, right? You're blind to it, and it will maximize others. That little speck is all that you can focus on. Again, think of the garden. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Right after they sin, God comes to Adam, says, what's going on here? And Adam's response is, you know, whose fault is this whole situation? Adam says, that woman you gave me, right? There's two people at fault. I'm not one of them, right? There's a giant plank. He doesn't see it. That woman that you gave me, by the way, is supposed to be a helper, right? And so you're at fault and he's at fault. Instantly, sin has blinded him. He's got a big plank that he doesn't even see. His sin is very much minimized and he's blaming everybody else. Everybody else's faults are huge in his eyes. That's what sin is going to do. Sin blinds Adam instantly. Again, everyone married or anyone with any sort of close relationship that's ever had a fight or confrontation, you demand other people quit twisting your words as you are literally twisting their words in that same conversation. Why are you doing this? You know, blind to the fact that you're doing the exact same thing. Our sins are minimized. Others' sins are maximized. And maximizing other people's sins is even a way that we try to minimize our sin. It kind of makes us weirdly feel good about ourselves. Right? There's always people you can compare yourself to. John Calvin says this, uh, See how all flatter themselves, and every man passes severe censure, judgment on others. This vice is intended to by some strange enjoyment, for there is hardly any person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. What's that weird thing that we all have when we hear of like another marriage that's not great? And we're all like, I could have told you that was going to go bad, right? I want everyone to know I could have called this. What's that weird? When you have dirt on other people, you're like, you want other people to know. I saw this coming. What's going on there? There's something weird in our heart that loves highlighting the faults of others. Most prayer meetings when we go around, you know, saying prayer requests, all that is is kind of the, the gossip session. So-and-so needs prayer. They are struggling, <laughs> Let me tell you, right? Your weird like enjoyment of other people's sins. Why? Because that makes you feel a bit better about yourself, right? It's a way of shrinking our own sin. That's what sin is going to do. It makes you love maximizing the speck in other people's eyes, and it helps you shrink the plank that is in your eye. And by the way, that's horrible for every side, 
right, when we behave that way. It's bad for the people that we're judging because we're probably judging them falsely. We can't really see straight, and it's horrible for us. All we're doing when we do that is further blinding ourselves, further hardening our own hearts, further making it difficult for us to see clearly. We're bolstering our own pride while we're Aggies in France speaking Spanish, right? We don't have a good read of our own situation, and therefore we're just blind everywhere that we go. We often don't realize how much we are harming ourselves. Uh, There's a podcast of two historians that I listen to, which gives you uh, an insight into how cool I am. Uh, Two two, uh, historians, uh, Tom Holland and Dominique Sandbrook, for the history nerds, uh, and they were, it's called The Rest is History, and they were talking about, you know, uh, they take a subject and spend a whole episode talking about that subject, and they were talking about civil war, uh, and what are the traits, what are the 10 traits of, that every civil war kind of has in common? And one, it was terrifying, because America's at like nine out of the 10, uh, but the thing they said is pretty universal across all civil war is neighbors have to be convinced that their neighbor across the street doesn't just share a different view than them. Don't just, they don't not, uh, you know, they don't see eye to eye, but rather uh, they are evil in their views and they're wicked. You're on the good side, they're on the bad side, and in fact, it might be a moral good to just go ahead and eliminate them. They said that's the key thing across all uh, civil war, convincing neighbors to judge their neighbor wrongly to dehumanize them, to see them with a plank in their own eye and maximize their specs. So this is no small thing that Jesus is talking about, that sin is doing in our hearts. So what are we to do about it, right? This is such a, such a big deal, and it's wreaking havoc, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. What are we to do about it, Jesus? He says, here's the solution. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly. Remember that you're not God, that your judgments are simply merely uh, reflecting his perfect judgment. Remember that you are human. Remember that you're a human who is prone to sin, even if you've been redeemed, right? This side of glory, we're prone to sin. Our flesh is always going to try and pull us back, pull our eyes away from our merciful Savior. Remember that you're prone to sin, and remember that you are very much in need of grace. Remember that there's a plank in your eye. We should assume, just by the very nature of we're human, sinners in need of grace, we should assume that we aren't naturally going to perfectly see, that we aren't going to see clearly that sin is going to be active in trying to blind us. When we receive, you know, someone does something and it makes us upset, we should assume sin is going to give us a worse interpretation of that event than is actually true. We're going to assume, you should assume that sin is after you. Psalm 139, we see this in the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see this kind of prayer of like, I don't know. There might be something here that I'm not aware of. You who sees perfectly, search me and pull it out. I want to see it and I want to take it out of my eye. Augustine prays something similar. I love this. Cleanse me from my secret faults, O Lord. I fear to deceive myself, lest my sin should make me think that I'm not sinful. You have an enemy, and you have a sinful flesh that is very much going to try and convince you there's no plank, 
you see perfectly. It's everybody else that's got the problems. And Jesus says, don't fall for it. We all have sin-colored glasses. I should have worn my glasses. It would have been nicer. When I do this, I'm talking about glasses. Uh, We all have sin-colored glasses, right, that are going to color everything that we see. And so the most helpful thing for you to do isn't pretend that you're not a sinner anymore, but rather be aware that they are there. Be aware that you are a sinner in need of a gracious, gracious Savior. The best thing is to simply recognize that you're being blinded by sin, and ironically, then you'll begin to see a bit clearer. You see that. Realize that sin is very actively trying to blind you, and ironically, you'll start to see clearer as you pray like Augustine for the Lord to just reveal these secret things that you're blind to. The first attribute uh, that we saw of the people of the kingdom back in the Beatitudes was that they're poor in spirit. The people of the kingdom, these people with the planks in their eyes, know there's no riches here. There's only poverty. I need someone to intervene because I have nothing to give. I have nothing but filthy rags to give. I have no clear sight. I need someone, a gracious Savior, to intervene to be riches for me and to reveal where I am blind. The holiest people you will meet uh, typically aren't the ones who, you know, hover and and pray in Latin or something like that. It's the people that are actually going to be most aware of their own sin. The closer you get to an infinitely holy God, the more aware of your own sin and your shortcomings before him, and then the more aware you will be on your desperate, desperate need to abide in a gracious Savior. The same comes as we judge others. Remember that we are a sinner in need of a gracious Savior. I heard one pastor say, the reality of the gospel is that we are so sinful that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us. And so the gospel should humble us, not in a shameful way, but in a sobering way, that we aren't just waking up out of bed ready to bless the world with our awesomeness. We are very much in need of an awesome Savior to see others clearly and to judge mercifully. And so when we see ourselves rightly, when you know the reality of your own heart, that you, will, you were marched into the divine courtroom as the defendant and you were guilty of every single crime that you had been accused of. And Jesus Christ came and stepped in your place and the gavel came down and declared him guilty of all of your sin and you innocent how could you ever look down your nose at anybody else? How could you never not extend the same gracious, gracious patience to anybody else? You've received, you've been on the receiving end of unthinkable mercy and grace. And so the people of the kingdom don't withhold it from others because they know they've been humbled by the gospel. People of the kingdom judge slowly. We search our own hearts We search to see where is that plank that's probably uh, giving us an incorrect view of what's happening. We judge mercifully. We know that those who we are judging are like us. They're in need of grace. We judge humbly, remembering who we are, and we judge as we have been judged by a gracious, gracious Savior. So that's the first point. How are we meant to judge others as people of the kingdom? We know we've received infinite mercy, and so we judge others Humbly. What's the second thing Jesus is going to say? Verse 6, we judge wisely. 
Verse 6, do not give to the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Okay, so Jesus just said, be very humble, and then we're calling people dogs. So takes a bit of a turn, what's happening here. Uh, <laughs> takes a little bit of explanation. So dogs in Jesus, they aren't sweet house pets. Uh, they're scavengers in the streets. Uh, in the Christian school I went to growing up, we would take a spring break short-term mission trip, which means you go to a country in Central America, you have a beach day, then you have a shopping day, and then you do skits for a couple days, and then you fly home. Uh, but in that small little ministry section, uh, you know, one of the things that the leaders would always tell all of us uh, was, don't touch dogs that come up to you, okay? Not pets, not friendly, not clean. Yeah, they're not, yeah, just leave them alone, right? Don't touch the dogs. Same in Jesus' day. They're scavengers in the street. Pigs were unclean uh, to Jews, right? So Jesus said, it's meant to be this picture of kind of vicious, unclean, uh, what is abominable to his hearers. Jesus' hearers would have all understood that. And then all throughout the gospel, especially in Matthew, pearls are meant to be the treasures of the kingdom. We see it, we'll see later in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search for fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so Jesus, just, just in the most basic way, is saying, don't give the sacred things of the kingdom to what is uh, abominable, to what is detestable. Right? It doesn't mean you don't evangelize to the dogs or the lowly. That's literally all Jesus is going to do in his ministry. So what, what, what does he actually mean? That's a, that's a fun principle. How does that apply to what we're talking about? Uh, Jesus is simp uh, quite simply saying there are going to be people you encounter who have such hard hearts. You know, Think of Pharaoh in Exodus or such blind eyes that they're not going to listen to the things of the kingdom. They're only going to abuse it, and they're only going to abuse you. So there are times where you shouldn't engage with them. Or there are times where you say, okay, no more. This is no longer going to be fruitful. Again, we see this with Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus literally says he, hid, he, he will hide uh, you know, the things of the kingdom from the wise, or thanks God that he's hidden the things of the kingdom from the wise and revealed them to little children. At one point, Jesus says, I speak in parables so that people don't understand, except for the, the disciples to whom the secrets of the kingdom have been given. Jesus spends his time with those that know they need a savior, not with the hard-hearted people who have already made up their minds. Uh, Greg Kokel, who's an apologist and a writer commenting on this passage, says this, it's not that Jesus saw, uh, saw people as beasts. No, I think he was warning us to be circumspect with people who act in a beastly manner. And when, they offer the, and when they're offered the pure and precious grace of God, sometimes wisdom dictates we keep our distance and ration our efforts. So what does this have to do with judging? Right, the context of this sermon, what does this have to do with judging. Uh, quite simply, Jesus has, has told his disciples, told us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, judge graciously, judge humbly. And here he's saying, but don't swing the pendulum. Don't let go of discernment. Don't let go of wisdom. Be slow to judge, be humble, but there will be cases where you're to discern, you're to judge that someone is incapable of hearing you. And so you shouldn't continually engage with them, which seems very unchristian 
Uh, but he's actually echoing wisdom that is all throughout the Proverbs. Proverbs 26.4, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Proverbs 23.9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Proverbs 9.7, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself uh, abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, for he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Jesus is quite simply just saying, judge wisely. Judge humbly, patiently, but don't let go of discernment. Also judge wisely. So we have to be careful with this. This is a very general statement. So we have to be careful with specific application. But for us, it's quite simply, there will be times where wisdom should dictate how we engage. If it's very obvious that someone doesn't want to have a productive conversation, someone really doesn't want to get after the truth, they just want to fight, or they just want to win, or they just want to name call and things like that, wisdom would say, this is uh, pearls before swine. I shouldn't engage here because we don't have the same goal. Your goal is to trample and to attack, not to actually get at the things of the kingdom. Does that make sense? There will be times where we're meant to judge wisely. Uh, immediate application is, you know, Twitter or Facebook's not great for, you know, theological debates. So there's one, instant one. Just quit doing that, right? People on uh, social media aren't ready for, how can I learn and, and be fruitful, right? We want to scream. Uh, a lot of exclamation points, right? So, so there will be times where you are to use wisdom and say, uh, not fruitful, right? They have one goal, and it's to just twist your words and and things like that. They don't want to get at the truth, okay? So don't hypocritically rush to judgment. Be slow, be patient, be humble, but also don't swing the pendulum and just quite simply be naive, right? Hold on to discernment, judge wisely, okay? Humbly, wisely, and then there's one more thing uh, that is perhaps the most important thing, and that is uh, not something we see explicitly in the text, but it's just to realize what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen sermon after sermon after sermon, isn't just giving us rules to follow, not moralistically saying, here's your new outline of what you can and cannot do. He's not simply saying, here's uh, the values, right, The, the moral values of the people of the kingdom. Rather, he is saying, the people of the kingdom Those who have been transformed by the Spirit are those who have had a supernatural reality invade their heart and quite literally changed you from the inside out. The reality of the gospel, the reality of what Jesus has done for you should humble you, like we've talked about, should bring us low to think. Nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save me, but it also brings uh, an unthinkable joy that should just explode in your heart because we don't just say, oh, I'm that sinful and stay there. We say, he must have loved me that much. If my sin is infinitely bigger than I thought it was, his love for me must be that much infinitely bigger than I thought it was. He went to the cross to pay for my sin, and according to Hebrews 12, he did it joyfully. He did it for the joy set before him. He joyfully took our guilty verdict. He took your condemnation. He took your judgment on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous 
for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took your guilty verdict so that you can be acquitted. And don't miss this. You are acquitted. Let the joy explode in your heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As he's scooted you aside and said, I'll take the guilty verdict. And when you see that, yes, there's that deep humility, but there's also a joyous freedom. There's no wrath hanging over my head. It hasn't just been pushed back like in Israel when they would sacrifice a goat or a bull. It's been paid for. There's no wrath left. There's nothing left that could be poured out over me. The judgment has been given and it can't be revoked. And when you know that, and when you begin to live in fellowship with that Savior who doesn't just say, here, I'll fill out the paperwork, you're guilty, you know, have fun with your life, but says, come, be adopted into my family, know my Father as your Father, know me as your Savior and brother, know my Spirit as the thing that is the very core of who you are. When you know that joyful Savior, you'll begin to view others through Him. You'll begin to bear the fruit of that Spirit, and your eyes will begin to actually be transformed to see others as he sees them, and you'll begin to judge joyfully because you know that a Savior out of the joy in his heart judged you and judged you innocent. And by the way, as you go out into the world, as, as, uh, if, you, if you're nervous about your evangelism skills, there's something else that is constantly declaring your witness, and it's just how you live. Last week, in an anxious world, we saw that if you trust your father, if you're not anxious, what a witness that would be to our terrified, stressed-out world. And here, if in a world that is filled with rageful judgments all the time, what a witness to a glorious Savior it would be if we were a people who judged humbly, judged wisely, and judged joyfully because we know how our Savior judged us. May we be those people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we pray that it might just settle in our hearts. There's a way that uh, things can just knock around in our minds, and we think that's a nice idea. Uh, Or even if we've been a Christian our whole lives, we think that's great. Another uh, reminder of the truth of God, but I pray that it would settle down into our hearts, the soil of our hearts, to actually bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be a people who are humble, not in a shameful way, but actually know, yeah, this is who I am. There's nothing good in me. I I need a gracious Savior, and I've found one, or rather, he's found us, that we would be a humble people, we would be a wise people, that you would sanctify our our minds where we trust in you and and the wisdom that's filled throughout the Proverbs, we would see and, and judge people as a result of, and then we would be a people of joy 
that is just so attractive to a lost and dying world, to see a people who actually know uh, we will live for eternity with the God of all beauty, who looks at us and doesn't just say, guy or girl that I have to like because of stuff Jesus did, but rather looks at us and sees my child, uh, my son, my daughter, who I long to know, who I loved from before, I said, let there be light. And I knew I would send my son to redeem, and I joyously adopt into my family. That's all of our reality, and you're the only one who can change that in our hearts, to see the glorious uh, truths of your gospel. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that the, this truth of your word would transform us and that we would judge people as we are meant to, as the people of the kingdom, and might walk in this restful joy that can only come from knowing and trusting in your son. And we pray these things to you in his glorious name, Jesus' name. Amen.